Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. We, we had we had a week off last week um, and a lot of things happened. Like the biggest thing, though, uh, that everybody's talking about and that we're going to be talking about today is the clashes in Alay. They left two people dead last weekend. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But first off, we've got a whole bunch of news to go through really quickly. Uh, and, and we're going to start out with uh, the incinerator debate. It's back. Yeah, it's back and it's on fire. Uh, we had a big protest, not very big, but a major protest with MPs and many groups uh, in front of the Beirut Municipal Council on Thursday because the council was meeting to decide on the bid document for the incinerators that they are planning to have in one, at least in Beirut. Uh, that was the plan. Uh, the protest was organized by the Waste Management Coalition, which has a group of you know NGOs as well as small political groups, and MP Paula Yaoubian but also tons of other organizations. And it was supported by a wide margin now of, of political figures, including Qatar uh, Party with its MPs, Nadim Jmail and Lies Hankash, who were at the po- protest, but also the Orthodox Christian religious institution in Beirut, uh, headed by Lies Audi. They are also opposing the incinerators. Anyway, the council met and they decided to postpone the discussion because it was clear it was not passing for many reasons. Some council members are against the incinerators altogether, while others have their own reservations. So the LF, the Lebanese Forces representatives, are less radical about it, while the Qatar people are saying no incinerators in Beirut uh, by any means. Yeah, and, and this is like a really controversial issue, because on the one side, you have people saying, oh, well, we have all this trash, we need to get rid of it somehow, and we also need electricity, so why not kill two birds with one stone? We have the technology, let's do it. And on the other side, there's just like sort of, I guess, the realists who are like, yeah, but this is really dangerous stuff. And if you don't control like all the fly ash and all this other stuff, then things are going to get out of control. And like all of our kids are going to get cancer, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, or, or some level of that. And and so it's, it's a really huge debate with pretty big consequences, especially if they do end up putting one of these incinerators in Beirut in quarantina. That, that's a big deal. Yeah, so th- these people are mainly opposing it because it's in Beirut, right? Like Katab are mainly concerned with it. And Nadim Ismail was there in the protest because it's in Beirut. And he said, we don't want it in Beirut. He didn't say we don't want it at all. Uh, but other people are saying, no, it's just a bad policy or not the realistic thing to do, as you're saying, because look at our, the current kind of power plants that we have and these, uh, these establishments that are creating a lot of pollution in Zoo uh, and causing really horrible, horrible pollution in Juni, one of the worst in the world. So we, we have very bad experience with the state managing these uh, institutions, so we don't want another source of potentially very toxic uh, gases. Yeah, and to be fair, the Beirut municipality hasn't said, oh, it's going to be in quarantina. They say somewhere, maybe outside of Beirut or whatever, and in the roadmap uh, that was uh, put together by the environment minister, Fadi Jurisati, and sent to Saad Hariri last month, the, that includes two incinerators, one in Deir Amar up in, in the north and another either in Jie or in Zahrani uh, down south of Beirut. But, but we don't know if those are like inclusive of the Beirut one or besides the Beirut one or what. But incinerators, it, it seems as though like there's a certain political class that has said, okay, incinerators is one of the answers that we are going to be pursuing, uh, you know, one of the solutions that we're going to be pursuing to the waste management crisis. Yeah, so one of the issues, as you're saying, with the bid document is that it didn't specify a location, uh, which means that potentially it can be anywhere. But why is Beirut's municipality, you know, commissioning a project to another area that wouldn't be 
the reasonable thing to do. It's not part of his uh, jurisdiction. But Jamal Atani has suggested reportedly in, state, in a statement he made to a radio station that we could do it, you know, not necessarily in Beirut, we could do it anywhere in Akkar or in East Lebanon on the borders, whatever. Yeah, imagine the traffic from that. Yeah, <laughs> All the trucks on the road up to, going up to Akkar. Yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't like, make much sense. Yeah, but like notice the 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 ease with which our politicians say things like, "Oh, we're going to do something in Akkar because Beirut's residents don't accept it." It's the second time that this happens. It happened when we were discussing landfills four years ago, and they said we'll do a huge landfill in Akkar, and Akkar's people were like, "No, we're not a dumpster." Two days ago, after Aitani said that, Akkar's activists released a statement saying, "We will incinerate." whoever allows themselves to uh, pollute its to uh, pollute Akkar's environment <laughs> underestimate its yeah. people we will sh- see a lot of a lot of resistance i'm sure we also know from a meeting with an mp that they're considering to have uh, the incinerator in Shwaifat potentially which would also be catastrophic because Shwaifat has suffered from Naam landfill now Costa Brava landfill because they are both quite close and then having an incinerator there it would be impossible to pass uh, and speaking of burning heaps of trash the deal of the century <laughs> uh, so Jared Kushner the son-in-law and somehow senior advisor uh, at the White House <laughs> releases economic uh, the economic part of his plan for Middle East peace uh, just a couple weeks ago. And th- this offers like $50 billion in loans and grants, private sector investment for Lebanon, Egypt, Jordan, and the West Bank and Gaza, not Palestine. Palestine is not mentioned anywhere in the documents. It, I guess, doesn't exist, according to them. But anyway, uh, Leb- Lebanon, by the way, would get like $6.325 uh, of this Six billion of this would be for transport, but would only come in phase three of the plan, which is like years eight through ten. So it, it is a lot of money theoretically for Lebanon, but not for a really long time. And I mean, a lot of money. It's like our yearly deficit, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And it, and like almost seventy five percent of it, Lebanon would have to pay back as well. It's loans mostly. Oh, thank you. That's so generous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Concessional loans, but loans. Yeah, so anyway, so this plan, the economic part was released. They had this conference in uh, Bahrain. Uh, The political part of it's going to be released later. Basically, it appears as though one of the basic facets of the deal for for neighbors is we give you money in return for absorbing Palestinian refugees. Lebanon has a lot of Palestinian refugees, and everybody sort of thinks that like, oh, well, they're going to give us this money or these loans that we have to pay back, what are they going to ask in return? Well, the obvious thing that they would ask for return in this upcoming political part of the plan is for us to give all the Palestinians here, which is, you know, at least 175,000 of them, give them Lebanese citizenship and absorb them into the country, which is a a ridiculous non-starter politically here in Lebanon. Uh, And and all the sides, and, and and also, you know, like for the Palestinians as well, just a total non-starter, uh, giving up basically everything that they've fought for and worked for ever since the Nakba, that for a few billion dollars, that just doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense to do. It, yeah, it's and it's playing on, on the, the worst scapegoat that exists in Lebanese politics, which almost everyone agrees with, which is this threat of Palestinian naturalization, right? Everyone is always... Worry, worried about that and mobilizing people based on that for, for ages now. And uh, it's funny because when things like that happen, like, you know, a Trump plan to naturalize 
Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, it adds into this rhetoric that, you know, this threat of naturalization is real. So it helps like right wing politics here as well. And how this is translated in like actual terms is Palestinians not getting their normal civil and social and economic rights because of this fear of naturalization. Exactly, exactly. Parliament also met the week before last, uh, and they, they did a few important things. One of them was appointing five members to the Constitutional Council. This is long overdue. The current Constitutional Council, their term ended in 2015, I want to say. And so, like, yeah, we, we need a new Constitutional Council. The way it usually works is half the members are appointed by Parliament, and then half the members are appointed by the Council of Ministers. So you got five and five, ten total judges on the court. Parliament did its half, and they they appointed one Maronite, one Greek Orthodox, one Sunni, one Shiite, one Druze. It was confessionally, you know, the, the sectarianism pervades everything, obviously, here. So, and, and this is no exception. And this is the Constitutional Council, right? The, 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 the court that is supposed to be maintaining the Constitution and protecting right. it. So, if this one is sectarian as well, and this, you know, boldly sectarian... Who is going to, you know, work for a, for a secular or less sectarian Lebanon? And it's also like you mentioned the sects, but we should also be clear that these are people who have political connections. And this is why their names are uh, on top, right? Because there was no like real election or anything. There was an agreement between political forces. Each one has his own candidate and they made this formula and they agreed on it. So, uh, you know, the FPM would get the Maronites, the LF would get the Catholic, etc. Right, right, right. Parliament also exempted the children of Lebanese mothers from needing work permits. So like a, a Lebanese woman who is married to a foreigner cannot give nationality to her children, but they made it so that at least the kids now don't have to apply for a work permit in order to work here. So it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Uh, this, this was opposed, though, of course, by the FPM and the LF, the two main Christian parties, who were that this is sort of like a piecemeal step towards g- giving full nationality to uh, the children of Lebanese women who are married to foreigners, which they worry, by the way, is like going to shift the sectarian balance again. It's absolutely ridiculous, of yeah, course. Yeah. And also, Parliament extended the Provisional 12th, which we've talked about numerous times on this program, through July 31st. So we, we thought it was going to be July 15th. They decided, no, we're going to give ourselves a couple more weeks, a little more breathing room to pass the budget. And, and that is also moving forward. Just this past Friday, Ibrahim Kanan, the head of the Finance and Budget Committee, came out and said, we need one more session, uh, and then we will send the budget over to the full House of Parliament, and you guys can vote on it. So we're, we're, we're looking for that to happen in the next couple of weeks. Definitely before the end of July, we'll have a Parliament session and they will argue and yell about the budget for a little bit and then agree and pass everything. That, however, is not likely to please the IMF. Uh, the IMF came out with their Article 4 consultation this past week. And by the way, the Article 4 consultation is just like a basically yearly thing. IMF staff comes here. They talk to a bunch of people. They talk to the finance ministry and they talk to the uh, BDL, the central bank, and to a bunch of other people. And then they go back and then they write up this report on like, well, what what does Lebanon need to do uh, and what how they see the economy uh, and especially, you know, financial matters and and fiscal matters uh, uh, of the state. 
And they said that the budget, they don't think that it's going to bring the budget deficit down from like it was 11% or so of GDP back in 2018. They don't think it's going to bring it down to 7.6% of GDP, uh, which is what all the politicians are saying this new budget is going to do that they're about to pass. They say, no, it's probably more like 9.75% of GDP. That's more the cut that we're looking at. So shaving off one, one and a quarter percentage points from the deficit uh, as a percent of GDP. Um, and they, they say that, well, this like really isn't enough. And it's really not enough if you look into the medium term as well beyond 2019. It doesn't do enough to even stop the debt from growing, right? Yeah. So so this is really a, a, a big issue for them and, and a big issue for Lebanon, right? Because if the debt continues to grow, then at some point we will default for sure. And by the way, like they, they mentioned a lot of other bad things that are happening. Apparently in 2018, according to the IMF, the economy only grew by 0.3%. Um, inflation was at 6%. The current account deficit uh, grew to more than 25% of GDP last year. BDL reserves are cratering basically down by $6 billion since January 2018. So I, I looked at the BDL numbers for, from BDL itself, and in May, the latest figures that are available, their foreign exchange reserves, actually, they dipped under $30 billion for the first time since 2012. So $30 billion is still a lot of money to have laying around. So we definitely have time. Uh, we, we've got a nice cushion, but losing $6 billion in the space of a year and a half, that's a whole lot. That is, that, that's a lot of money that's, that's leaving Lebanon. So amid all these things, what is the government supposed to do? According to the IMF, you know, like, well, number one, you got to like bring the budget deficit down. And in order to do that, what do you do? Increase taxes, apparently, according to the IMF. Like and we, we, we've talked about it before on this on this program. There There is this problem and, and it's right. Like, how do you bring down the deficit? How do you address this? And you can do one of two things. Either you can make the people pay through like more taxes and through austerity measures and stuff like that. Or you can like make the financial sector pay basically and, and the rich people pay through like higher tax rates on like high uh, high income earners uh, and also just through like taxing the banks or making them buy debt for like really cheap. And the IMF is all in on the former. Like, no, we got to do austerity. Absolutely. Increase VAT increase fuel uh, excises, like the taxes on fuel, which would be insane, I think, uh, totally divorced from reality. If if these measures actually went through, they'd be highly unpopular. I don't think the government would survive it. I, I just, I don't see how it would. Um, and Hariri himself might, might not even survive it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the IMF is thinking. I think they're providing the, the kind of the most regressive and anti-poor people argument so that the government can take something in the middle or can push in that direction a bit. But it's absolutely insane. How did they, what kind of assessment are they building Are they building this, uh, this statement on or this recommendation on? Adding fuel taxes or VAT while people's purchasing power is really low and the horrible amount of inequality that exists and the need for economic growth. When you need economic growth, you don't increase VAT, you make people consume more, right? You have to increase demand in the market rather than just taking money out of what people are already spending on fuel and on VAT. I don't know any economic theory that supports this. This is absolutely regressive and, and stupid in my opinion. And, and to be fair, the IMF did offer some other recommendations as well, like the increasing VAT and, and fuel tax. That's sort of like the big things that, that would get a lot of attention but they also said oh well you can make permanent the 
rise in the tax on income in, from deposits in banks from seven to ten percent. Uh, just you know, that's supposed to be what for three years, make it permanent. And also, they recommended uh, combating tax evasion, which is a great idea, but it just it takes a long time to effectively combat tax evasion. It's not something that you can just flip a switch and get it done in a year or so. Definitely. Um, so I, I think it's weird, though, because they, they were very, very strident in their opposition to having BDL or the financial sector pay for any of this stuff. And almost like like they're protesting too much a little bit, in my opinion. It makes me wonder what they've learned about the weakness uh, of BDL's balance sheet, about the potential weaknesses that we have in our financial system. I don't know, because they, they were just very, very strident that like you can't put any of this burden at all on the financial sector. It seems strange. Yeah, that's a good point. But it's also uh, assuming that they are not just in bed with the banks and the central bank governor and deciding what recommendations to give together. I mean, which, in my opinion, is closest to, closer to what I would think. Is and, and I mean, IMF orthodoxy, just, you know, what they believe would lend themselves to say, well, don't do this. Right. Yeah. All right. So that brings us to uh, the main thing that we want to talk about today, and that is the LA clashes. And with this, there's a lot going on. So we're going to go through, like, first off, just what happened, what we know happened, and then they're diverging stories, right? So we don't really know all of the truth, and we're going to try to sort of suss all of that stuff out. And then we're going to sort of draw back and look at the larger, what is the larger political stage here, and what does this mean? Yeah, this was really uh, a tragic but also politically alarming thing that had happened in the last two weeks. The whole country has been talking about it, as you said in the beginning of the episode. What we know for sure happened is that two people were killed and at least one other was wounded when uh, armed men shot at the convoy of uh, State Minister for Refugee Affairs, Saleh Gharib, when he was passing in uh, the area of Qabrishmoun, the village of Qabrishmoun in the district of Alay. So that's east of Beirut. And Gharib is affiliated with the Lebanese Democratic Party. We will use this acronym a lot in this episode, LDP, which is the party of Talal Irslan, a politician from, you know, a very famous uh, feudal family in the Druze community who has been uh, leader of, of, of a significant portion of the Druze for the last 30, 40 years at least. Yeah, like his legal name is Alimir Talal Irslan. Yeah, exactly. Like the Emir, the prince. It's like legally on documents yeah <laughs> that's what it says and Islam is obviously the kind of the Druze foe of Walid Jumblat who is much more powerful but uh, and but based in a different area of uh, of Jabal Jabal is you know the Druze mountain more or less uh, Jumblat is the Zaim in Shuf and has a lot of support in Alay as well with Akram Shaib there but Islam is only kind of based in Alay Okay, so all the two people who died, uh, all reports said that they are bodyguards, but then the family of one of them denied and said that their son is uh, is just an executive council member at the uh, LDP, Erslan's party, and he you know, had a business degree, he was running the family business, so he's not a bodyguard, trying also to dis distance him from people that were shooting with machine guns and say that he's innocent. And there are obviously contradicting narratives on how this whole thing happened from the FPM and LDP side, or the and the PSP side, but what you know the context is that Jibran Basil was doing a tour in the area, okay, a political tour. Jibran Basil is doing a lot of these political tour uh, regularly, and he was uh, visiting Shuf and Alay, mostly Alay, in this last tour, and um, he was mostly visiting Christian villages, of course, but you know with always with his inflammatory rhetoric, 
bringing back some civil war things, memories and heroism and whatever rhetoric from the civil war, and also waging the war against Jumblat indirectly, uh, the Jumblat dynasty and the dominance in the area. And Gharib, who is an ally of the FPM, was accompanying him with accompanying Basile during part of his trip. And uh, the PSP was really angry at the, this tour happening and uh, the people he really hate Basile and they wanted to stop him from passing in their villages so we had a lot of roads being blocked and many villages, villages trying to stop the convoys and Gharib's convoy was passing in Qabrishmoon after Basile had cancelled the rest of the day during the closures yeah and right here I think it's important to note that we still don't know exactly what happened here we don't know if if his convoy was coming back from a meeting with Gibran Basile or whether he did meet with him or not, or whether he was like going to meet him and then they didn't meet and he was coming back. But the idea is he was coming back from something, having met or not met with Basile. Yeah, what's important is that they arrive in this village, the convoy of Gharib, and the road was closed by pro-PSP residents. They stood in the way, they parked a car actually, uh, on the in this own small road that uh, passes through the village and the convoy was stuck there so free from this point the narratives contradict LDP said that it was kind of an armed ambush and that you know PSP armed men were waiting and they shot at the convoy which was not the story I mean if you see the videos it's clear that this is not what happened and first they said that it was a, an assassination attempt against Basile then it's they said they hinted that it's against Gharib so they're really all over the place the FPM also kind of uh, stopped at the point of the road blockage happening without explaining how things escalated into guns shoot people shooting with guns you know they didn't, they didn't explain this because there seems to be something they don't want to say PSP on the other side blamed the Gharib's convoy for shooting at protesters first which is something that of course we cannot confirm that they shot at protesters and they and the videos that they posted part of their propaganda they say that they show only the part where Gharib's people are shooting, but not where PSP's men are shooting at the convoy. So the most realistic story out of all this, all of this mess and politically charged propaganda that we're seeing in the last two days is that the road was blocked for a while. Gharib's men stepped out of the convoy and started shooting in the air in order to pressure the protesters to clear the road. And we do know that we have video of them shooting in the air. And yep. also Talal Arslan came out later and defended this and said it's normal for bodyguards to shoot in the air. Yeah. But Which is crazy for other reasons. But To explain, they were, they were shooting with machine guns in the air and it was not like a kind of two shots of a pistol in the air. It was more aggressive than that. And at this moment, the PSP guys went to their cars and grabbed their guns. And this is when Gharib's uh, car, the convoy, stepped over the obstacles they hit the the car that was closing the road so that they pass and the armed men came out of the convoy and they started shooting in the air and also pointing the machine guns at people this is all something we know from the video we don't know if they shot at anyone like uh, or they only shot in the air but they were pointing the machine guns at people as well and this is when the PSP people had their guns and they started shooting at the convoy and um, realistically, these are the bullets that ended up, you know, wounding or uh, killing the two men. So this is the story. It's much more complicated than any of the two sides are trying to, to make it. But regardless of who shot first, it was clear that both sides behaved like armed militias and turned into a scene into what looked like really a civil war battleground. So unsurprisingly, there's been a lot of tension in the area after this. Uh, people spreading rumors, uh, a lot of propaganda, as you said. And reports of small scuffles and clashes, but nothing major, really, really serious. But there were 
long road blockades by Irslan's people in Khaldi because there is a highway connecting the south to Beirut in Khaldi and Khaldi is the hometown, the, the, the heartland and the, the current residence of Talar Irslan. Uh, but it's also important to remember that this comes as an accumulation because there was another incident where there was bloodshed between Irslan and Jumblad's people in the area. It was last year when a young man was killed. He was a firefighter. He was killed during clashes between PSP and LDP supporters when one of the one of Talal Irslan's people allegedly fired an RPG at uh, the office where this man was staying. So this this was this is the background with against which we are discussing this incident. There's a lot of tension in the last year and there's a lot of politics behind it as well. Okay, yeah, so there's there's a whole lot of politically motivated tensions here. Uh, and it goes not just to uh, the fight, you know, the, the intra-Druze fight between Jumblad and Erslen. It, it also goes to who Erslen has allied himself with. And that is the free patriotic movement. Definitely. Uh, and, and, and with the free patri- patriotic movement, you also get Basile. And so we, we had, in this situation, we had Gharib, who was his convoy was attacked or his convoy was in the clashes, right? He was a minister because of Erslen's deal with Basile and he had been helping with Basile's trip to the area, like the FPM coming into Ale mm-hmm. in in a very real sense, right? In in a, in, a, in a physical sense, like the FPM coming in. And that this mirrors what, what happened politically as well, right? With the last elections, the FPM came into the mountain. The the PSP, uh, if you remember, in the 2018 elections, they lost two seats. Well, really, that, that was a net, right? They lost. They went from 11 to nine seats. Really, they lost three seats and they picked up one, right? All three seats that they lost, they lost to the FPM. The one seat that they gained, they took it from the FPM or they took mm-hmm. it to somebody who was close to the FPM. So in, in a very real sense, from the PSP's perspective, the 2018 election was all about fighting the FPM. And from the FPM's perspective, it was them moving in for the first time, moving into Shufanale. They yeah. did not, they didn't have representation there before. Exactly. And uh, as you're saying, like FPM is going in and the gateway to Shufanale that they chose is Talar Islan. And this is also very con- controversial because Talar Islan is much smaller in political size than Walid Jumblat. So Walid Jumblat was very provoked by this. Uh, and so it's a matter of who is the, the real gateway to the area, to, to the mountain. Uh, this is the battle really, fundamentally. So as you said, the election was kind of the background that created and, and catalyzed all of this tension. And the, the propaganda and the, the mobilization in the election by the PSP and the FPM machines was really sectarian and like it was really charged with you know sectarian messages and fears. But also after the election, the cabinet formation process was also another place where there was a lot of tension because the PSP had won all of the Druze seats except Talal Arislan's seat, which they left open for him in the election. Right, they didn't contest it. Yeah, they didn't contest it. So after winning all of these seats, they said we need, we deserve to have the three Druze seats and the cabinet and the Council of Ministers. Uh, but FPM and Arislan did this uh, funny thing, which where they created a little block for him in Shufan Alay in order to support his effort to get one of the three seats for himself, which is why Gharib is a minister, is a state minister. So FPM was... Well, I mean, everybody main... knew that that was a fiction. I mean, everybody knows that Cesar Abi Khalil is not, does not answer to Talal Irslan, <laughs> even though he's in his like little mini block. No, he answers to Gibran Basile. 
obviously. But the FPM, the point is FPM was the political force that, you know, forced Jumblat to give away this one uh, seat in the Council of Ministers. And more recently, there have been some tensions about appointments and different state administrations, etc. But there's a lot of background where the FPM is basically threatening the dominance of Jumblat in the Druze scene and in the mountain. And this is true, of course, it's not like Jumblad is feeling it. We, we see it and Basile is waging this battle explicitly. And the, 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 this is the significance of the tour that he's doing. You know, in Lebanon, a Zaim going into an area is not just uh, any, like anywhere where a politician goes to different constituents and talks to them. It has much more weight. No, it, it's like a declaration of ownership, of like power, of, of or of some level of ownership and power in that area geography matters in lebanon it really really matters you you go around the country you'll see you know oh why is there a giant cross on top of that hill well it's because certain people have decided like this it's important that we sort of like claim this hill that we have this symbol on top of this hill mm-hmm. right and and you see this in, in a lot of places in the country and and, and and I think it comes a lot you know a lot of it's just natural I think just like human nature of territoriality but then all of this was also like greatly exacerbated especially by the Civil War where yeah. geography really 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 matters and your ownership your ability to control a certain piece of land uh, you know that can be make or break for you and your family and and for your your uh, your sect Definitely, because the civil war is about militias controlling territories uh, in the end. And uh, Jumblat was controlling this, this part of the territory and each of the parties had their own, like Ashrafi for the LF. Uh, we can go on all over the country, right? But I think Jumblat kind of took it to the next level with the reaction to what happened in Alay. Because it was usually politicians try to avoid going into you know civil can- civil civil war kind of rhetoric. But Jumblat's immediate reaction was a tweet where he didn't, he said, I don't want to go back and forth with media statements. Uh, I leave the, the, obviously, the investigation to to the state's forces. But he didn't pay condolences or express any regret for what happened. And he said, I hope the political newbies realize the delicate balance of power governing this mountain. So he's talking about the balance of power, meaning his political dominance and how you cannot come and shake it through the gateway of Talal Islan. So this is a message to Jibran Basile, who is calling a political newbie. And Taimur, who is the current leader of the bloc, uh, he said, what happened in the mountain today confirms that upsetting balances is a dangerous game. So this kind of reaction basically is means if you want to threaten my dominance in this area, you will be stopped by blood if necessary. This is really what it means fundamentally. And it's a really reckless, in my opinion, message. And it's really scary because it's a complete regression into sectarian militia rhetoric. Right, right, right. But it's it's Jumblat reminding people that like, oh, power is power. You know, sort of a Cersei Lannister move. Like, no, violence. It, at the end of the day, what this all boils down to, don't fucking forget, I still have this power. Yeah, and and... It's important to give the national political context for this because if we think about it, the FPM is not a big threat to Jumblat because the FPM is a Christian party, Jumblat is a Druze uh, leader, so each of them has a different kind of constituents. But why is it a threat? It's mostly because the FPM is coming as the new most powerful political force in Lebanon through its alliance with Hariri and the future movement. And this is what drives Jumblat crazy. He's been very vocal against the deal between Hariri and Aoun 
the deal that made Hariri prime minister and Aum president and then later led to the, the, the governments. Because mainly the deal has meant very strong rapprochement between Hariri and Aoun and Hariri used to be a very strong ally of Jumblat and also because his, his political significance, Jumblat's political significance is made, is reduced when the two most powerful political blocs in the country who have their own smaller allies have sat on the same table and agreed to govern together because then Jumblat is no longer the kingmaker in the political divisions. He's almost politically irrelevant. His positions do not affect what happens in the country and who rules. Yeah, and, and this is especially important when it comes down to issues of things like appointments, for instance, where like Jumblat depends a lot on getting his people into key state posts for, for his power, for the continuation of, of his power. But in the current deal between Aoun and Hariri, it seems as though they've sort of decided, I mean, the, the perception of very least is that they've just decided like, okay, we're we're going to cut everybody else out with, with the exception of the Shiites, of course, right? But it's going to be our guys uh, occupying the most important state positions. And I mean, as you on the out, that means the LF is out. Uh, and that's making these parties that are on the outs very, very unhappy. Yeah. And what you're saying is exactly at the heart of the issue, because everybody heard of the probably heard of the Hariri Jumblat war on Twitter the week before the last one, uh, where, you know, Hariri mocked the PSP for the lack of loyalty. And the PSP were saying like officials from the PSP were saying we're telling Hariri we need a real prime minister, uh, ma- meaning that he's very submissive to the submissive to the FPM. But as you're saying, it's really in the end about about what you do with this power. And uh, many people miss this, but Jimblad sent sent a very now confirmed uh, angry message, WhatsApp message to the head of the Internal Security Forces, Major General Ahmad Uthman for replacing one ISF officer with another. To be honest, I don't know the difference between, I don't know who who each ISF officer belongs to, but it's clear from what we will hear now. So it contained very strong insults to Hariri in the future. That's a warning. And it kind of depicted Hariri as being a political puppet to the FPM. So I'm going to read it. This is the quote. You replaced the esteemed Colonel Hanna Laham with Colonel Joseph Eid, a ridiculous and worthless officer. But it seems that you are coordinating with the Auni and Syrian Axis to corner me by any means available. That's fine. And I don't blame the head of the future movement who is vague in his color and ignorant of history and geography. Too strong, man. Too strong. Okay, I'm going to go on. Apologies for the harsh words, (laughs) Jumblat said. But your stupid, resentful or negligent action aims to weaken me for your chief which we think refers to Saad al-Hariri, for your chief to remain part of this rule that is decaying daily. And how would it be otherwise when you hate my presence in the Arab and national region and you serve this idiot Ahmad al-Hariri? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> End quote. This is the quote from Walid Jumlat. We are not saying these words. <laughs> these, are, <laughs> these are Walid Jumlat's words about future, future Secretary General this. Ahmad al-Hariri. He confirmed he said He this. confirmed and he said apologies for the people mentioned in the text, but I will leave it uh, to the public opinion to make it, to take a stance on this on this issue. So ba- basically, he he's sending this to Ahmad Osman, who is the head of the ISF and who is considered to be like Hariri's guy, uh-huh. right? And saying, "Oh, your boss Hariri like doesn't know what he's doing. I am very unhappy with this and you guys are a bunch of idiots." Basically, like yeah. nutshell. 
and it's such an impulsive message. I would not expect it from Wali Jumla, to be honest, because on the outside, we know that on the inside and among his people, sometimes it's very impulsive, but he's usually controlled when he speaks or when he coordinates with, you know, officials and yeah. media. Et yeah. But anyway, Jumblat has has reached a point of real crisis, real political crisis. This is what we understand. Maybe it's it's the time he's realizing. First of all, that he's not immortal, and that you know he moved already the 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 Kofiyas to Taimur, and he made them the the head of the parliamentary bloc, and he wants him to handle things because sooner or later Jumblat will pass away, and Taimur will have to handle it. And in this moment. There's so much political pressure on him. It's true. The FPM want to weaken him. Hezbollah sees him as a threat because he is the most anti-Syrian regime, you know, of, of the major political figures in Lebanon. And inside the Drusphere, he has Wahab getting stronger. Am Wahab, who is a pro-Syria, anti-Jumblat politician, who almost got a seat in the last parliamentary elections. He got just short of 13,000 votes. And and who also, we mentioned geography earlier, Erslan is up north in Alay, Jumblat's base is south in Shouf, while Wahab is in Shouf as well. Exactly, and this matters a lot. He's, he's the only anti-Jumblat politician who is based in Shouf. You know, one of these traditional politicians with their with their services and their network, clientelist networks. Et right, right. And, and along with that as well, uh, and what you were saying about the Jumblat being an anti-Syrian politician, well... Syria is waxing right now, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there, as as the civil war there sort of comes to a close, we're seeing more people talk about Syrian the return of Syrian power, not necessarily like boots on the ground or anything, but the return of Syrian influence here in Lebanon, and that which is going to happen, assuming that Bashar al-Assad, you know, vanquishes vanquishes all of his foes. Certainly at some point, we'll start to see a rise in Syrian power here. What does that mean for Jumblat? From Jumblat's perspective, that's another thing coming at him. Yeah, definitely. Um, So he has good reasons to worry that he's being politically coordinated. And also, we're only talking about the traditional political forces here, but we also should take into consideration that inside the Druze community as well, we had quite a significant independent movement in the last elections. And Jumblat was very wary of that. I was part of the political group that created the the political campaign there. And we saw that they took us seriously because a lot of people in the base of the PSP are progressive people, right? And they are ready and convinced to uh, endorse a different kind of politics today. Uh, One that looks for the future rather than to the past. And Jumblat sees this as a threat, which is why he moved his party into the kind of leftist uh, organization uh, in the last year or two with all the rhetoric against, you know, the economic model in Lebanon and participating in protests and a lot of things, even organizationally, how, they, how they're how they mobilizing. Uh, they're trying to make themselves a strong, functional party that has a left-wing orientation or progressive orientation. But it seems that, you know, what it comes down to is a different kind of mobilization because what we saw in Alay in the last two weeks is that when it's necessary, when he sees necessary, Jumblat will go much further than any of these strategies, nice little civil society strategies. And the mobilization of, of people based on these sentiments that is still really, really high now in, in Shufan Alay for the last few days, it's a way to close your the ranks. It's a way to reinforce yourself as the Zaim, uh, as someone who is, must not be questioned. And it, it only happens usually, in my opinion at least, when there is a crisis. So there is a crisis of legitimacy, and this is how Jumblat's reacting to it. 
Yeah, but both internally, it helps shore him up, right, with within his base. And then also externally, it shows uh, the other Zoma, no, you've got to fucking deal with me on my terms, because what are the lessons from this week? Geography matters, and also weapons matter. Violence matters. That speaks. Power is power. And and, and this isn't to say that Jumblat ordered anything, right? Like, it, it seems as though, no, that's definitely not the case in, in the actual clashes, but, but rather that sort of like laid the groundwork for this atmosphere where it's very, very easy for violence to break out. Yeah, and this is something that both sides are doing. It's just that it happened that this time it was Jumblat's people who did the bigger mistake, right? But the, the rhetoric that Basile is using all over the country and in this area specifically uh, is very provocative. And people are very, very, you know, angry about this uh, for, for, for good reasons. Um, bringing back old wounds from the civil war is not something easy to accept at all, especially in a very delicate area like Shufan Alay. The civil war ended in 1990, but we are living in the continuation of the civil war politically. And w- when these things happen, we are reminded of how difficult it is to, uh, to, to change the country as long as the warlords and people who are building their legacies on, on warlords are still ruling. Yeah, and I think this is instructive, like, more than just Jumblat. We're, we're seeing this from in Jumblat's case because he's uh, feeling cornered right now. But largely speaking, like across all of Lebanon, this, this is still how the Zouama think. They think it, like in the terms of the civil war, that, that mindset, that hasn't changed. It's been nice to not have fighting or not have a lot of fighting, you know, since 1991. But it could come back at the drop of a hat if people like if their interests are threatened. Yeah. And and. On a much smaller scale, this is what we saw in 2018 when we were when independent groups were trying to mobilize for their lists in different areas. It was almost impossible because it's so scary. You get so many threats just if you want to do if you just want to do any kind of, kind of campaign event anywhere. So it's a real real political obstacle. You cannot mobilize in Hezbollah's area because you're afraid of Hezbollah and Berri's area, etc. And Jumblat's area. So where can you really mobilize? It's uh, it's becoming more and more closed. And I think that really we're seeing a, a regression again into more and more sectarian divisions today than we were seeing 10 or 15 years ago. So maybe after in the 10 years after the civil war, we were hoping that things would get a bit smoother and the lines would get blurred. But today we are seeing that no, people who are lo- ruling this country are really ready to take it back 30 years at any time. And on that depressing note... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry uh, we'll, for that, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's all for us this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.